Did you know there's an app for that? This is oftentimes what we hear, right? Talk about something. Oh, man, I have to, I have to do this. Say, hey, did you know there's an app for that? No, I didn't know that. Why did you know that? So, well, I, I have this friend who, who makes apps, right? Have you ever wondered if, uh, if there's going to be an app that's going to be revolutionary, that you would think there would have to be some kind of knowledge about it? Because if people don't know about it, they can't, they can't use it. That if the maker, the designer of it, wanted to help other people with this app, then there must be some kind of news about the app. He will have neither uh, a, a, um, a benefit to people, and he will make no profit if no one knows about it. Correct? Have you ever wondered about the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ? Have you ever seen it in a similar way? That here, we're told in verse 17, he came, preach, he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Jesus came and he died. And um, he told all his followers, you know what? Don't tell anyone about this. Let's just keep it all a secret. How much of an effect would it have on people? Would, would there be believers in every tongue, tribe, and nation? There's a big difference between the work itself, doing the work, and there's also the work of letting others know about the goodness and the importance, the saving power of this work. Here we see that it wasn't enough that Jesus came to do the work, that the work had to be told to others, that Jesus had to commission people to bear this good news to others. Here, as we think about this passage, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Here he addresses the whole matter of differences. That God made people different. And oftentimes, men in their sin like to use these differences to divide themselves. But here, we see that when Jesus came, he came to bring peace between God and man. But he also came to bring peace between men and men. That the dividing wall of hostility, the, the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, the, the very law of the Jews, the ceremonial law which separated them, that Jesus came and he abrogated them. He put an end to them. And here we see that he made the two into one. So our previous passage, verses 14 to 16, the repetition there, which continues in verse uh, 18 is that the two become one. That the Jew and the Gentile have become one. That the Jew, though he's still a Jew, and the Gentile is still a Gentile, but whatever differences they have, they find their, their chief and greatest identity in Jesus Christ. And that's the meaning of the two becoming one. There is a new humanity. And that humanity is the church of Jesus Christ. So here we see in this passage that Jesus Christ and him crucified is your peace and only hope for access to the Father in heaven. Jesus Christ and him crucifies your peace and only hope for access to the Father in heaven. We'll look at this in three points. The first is the precious peace. Second, the proclamation of this peace. And third, the proof of this peace. So we have in verse, the first part of verse 17, the precious peace. And he came. So here, 
These three words, and he came. It describes the very work of Jesus Christ. It's not just that he came. It's why he came. Here in verse 17 is as if the Apostle Paul is revisiting this thought from verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So here he talks about Christ's work and he came. But it's not just that he brought people near. Because being near is not enough. He brought people in, so to say. He brought them near, he brought them in. And the description about how being near is important is so that they might have access through the Son to the Father who is in heaven. Here, we acknowledge that Christ's coming is precious because this peace that Jesus obtained, this peace was very costly to acquire. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus' blood, we're told, is precious because it's priceless. There's nothing else that can do it. The blood of bulls and goats cannot wash away sin. They were merely pointing ahead to a sacrifice that would come. That Jesus, the one and only sacrifice, he put an end to all of them. Here, Hebrews 10 speaks about the remission of sins. How the without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. But a human and a bull, though a human weighs a lot more than us, they're not of equal value. A bull was never created in the image of God. An ape, even though they look kind of like humans, they have somewhat similar skeletal structures, the big difference between them is that humans are created in the image of God. Apes and bulls and goats are not. Here, what Jesus came to do, he came to offer a sufficient sacrifice for sinners. And this blood of his is precious because there is no other man who is perfect and sinless but Jesus alone. Here, the fact that he came is not all that there is. Jesus did not come merely as a godly example. This is often what the liberals, the liberal Christians would like to say. He, he came as a godly example of what it means to love. Well, you know what? If that's all Jesus was, he, he was uh, in the same line as, as the prophets, right? Isaiah and, and Moses and, and Abraham and all these people who came before him. Hey, this means absolutely nothing, right? This means absolutely nothing. What he came was as, as, as a perfect example. And it's not just as an example. It's not merely as a martyr, Martyr being defined as one who suffers persecution and or death rather than renouncing religious beliefs. So you think about what Christ came and what he taught. He came proclaiming himself as God. He proclaimed himself as the Son of God. And the Jews, what they were wrong about is that they wrongly thought that he was lying or that he was... He was a crazy man. 
They're correct in that anyone who proclaims himself as God is committing blasphemy. And according to Judaism, anyone who commits blasphemy is worthy of death. The very thing that they're wrong on is that Jesus indeed is God. So for Jesus to tell others that he's the son of God, before Abraham was, I am, he said. And then they put him on trial. He says, oh, you're right. I'm not the son of God. Well, for that, would we be a lie, would it not? If he's, if he's now saying, no, no, I'm not the son of God because I don't want to be executed, that would be a lie. He can't recant that because that's exactly who he is. He is the son of God. We think about what he came to do, not just as a martyr. He came to die in place of a particular people. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He gives his life, meaning that he paid the price to set someone else free. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ, you believe that he died on your behalf, that he died for your sins, then he, is, he dies to set you free. That the very righteousness that God requires of us for trusting in Jesus Christ, that righteousness is yours. That righteousness is mine. The very righteousness that we lack, he freely gives to you. And he commands that you would embrace it by faith. Here, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, it is paid in full. It's not a partial payment. It's not a, the, first, uh, the first installment of the payment that you need. No, Jesus came and he paid the price for your sins in full. And that what he commands for you to do is believe upon him for eternal life. That you must follow after him. You must trust in him. So this is the first point, the precious peace. We have the second point, the proclamation of this peace. In the second half of verse 17. And preached peace to you who were far off. And peace to those who were near. Here, the, those who are far off are the Gentiles. And those who are near are the Jews. But it's not merely a matter of geographical or, or physical proximity. People can be close to the kingdom of God but not in it. Consider uh, Saul of Tarsus. This is, this is who Paul was. This is the old name of the Apostle Paul. Right? He was very advanced in Judaism. Right? That he was zealous for religion. That he was a persecutor of the church. That he dragged Christians off to prison. That uh, when Stephen, when Stephen in, in Acts, to Acts 7 uh, was stoned, that these men who heard Stephen preach this, uh, I suppose you could say it was an inflammatory sermon, right? He, He didn't pull any punches, right, with the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the Jewish religion. It's as if he, he was saying, hey, this is my farewell sermon. I'm going to tick off these men. No, no, he, he, didn't, he didn't intend to upset them. He, he knew that it would, right? Because here he's addressing how their religion missed the very focus 
they missed Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. And, and then when they dragged him out to stone him, they put their robes at the feet of a man whose name was Saul of Tarsus. Here, he was near because he was a Jew, but unless he embraced Christ, near is not near enough. Here I address also nearness. Children who are raised faithfully in a Christian home for most or all of their lives. You realize that no one gets into heaven by the faith of their parents. No one gets into heaven by the faith of their parents. What God commands is that you publicly profess faith in Jesus Christ. And that you appropriate the Lord Jesus as your own. The best that we can do in the church as parents is that we can give godly examples to our children. We can pray for them. We can give them instruction. We can disciple them. Right? This is the best that we can do. But you realize, this is the question I've already started asking my son. Okay? What happens if you move away for college or you graduate, you move away? You're not living in our home. Right? So Sunday morning, hey, the alarm goes off, right? Hey, you're just going to shut it off? I mean, hey, I, I'm not going to call you every morning, son, to check whether or not you're in the shower and getting ready and eating breakfast, getting ready for church, right? I mean, hey, this is when you're on your own, when no one's looking over your shoulder. Is there going to be a desire to worship our God and to follow Him? No one looking over your shoulder anymore. Near? but not near enough. What about those who are part of the outward ministry of the Christian church? Those who have even professed faith, but living as if one foot is still in the world, right? I mean, we think about Lot's wife. What this image shows, that Lot, the angels told Lot and his family, you better, you better get out of Dodge here, right? You better get out of uh, this valley, Sodom and Gomorrah, where they were. And Lot's wife turned around to look, and it, it wasn't a mere look, right? It wasn't a mere look. It, there, there was some, there was a longing that she had, an unwillingness to leave it behind, a love for it. And here we we read. Elder Wayne read in James chapter 4. Friendship with the world, enmity with God. He uses a strong word, you adulteresses. Are we able to worship God? And are we able to profess faith in Christ? But we're saying, no, we love the world. We want to be received by the world. We want to be accepted by the world. We want to be honored by the world. The answer is no, we cannot. Cannot. So this is close. This is near, but not near enough. Here we talked earlier at the beginning about the publicizing of the work of Christ versus the work itself. That Jesus came to do the work of the atonement. That he paid the price for sin, for the sins of his people. He died for a particular people. He died for particular sheep whose names he knew. He prayed for them in John 17. And here, you ought to understand that Jesus was limited in space and time as a human. So when Jesus was here, 
He had to sleep. The demons, the demons don't have a body. They don't need to sleep at all. You know, they, they, 24-7, they can, they can cause trouble. Jesus had a body. He, in his 30-something years, he, he still had to sleep, right? He was hungry, and he had time to preach. But he realized he, geographically, he didn't get very far, right? So we, we think about this, this statement, and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. That God did not send his son to be the one and only evangelist for the whole world. So when we talk about how Jesus came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near, there is definitely a sense of delegation. We call that the Great Commission. So we ask, we ask, well, wait a minute. You mean to say that Jesus preaches to us the good news in other forms? He sends people, right? You think about Luke, so Luke chapter 16. Uh, the, the man who was, was uh, suffering, right? The, the rich man and Lazarus. And, and he's saying, well, no, no, no. I have my brothers. And, and you know, we, if someone comes back from the dead, they're, they're going to believe them. And the response was, he has, they have Moses and the prophets. And so, well, no, 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 no. They, they need to hear someone, right? Someone who comes back from the dead. Says, no, no, no. If they're not going to listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to listen if someone rises from the dead. Because in fact, someone did rise from the dead. His name is Jesus. He rose from the dead. Right? Are people still believing? Everyone who hears that, are they going to believe that? It'll never be enough. Unless there's the work, the power of the Holy Spirit. Here we think about the imperfect messengers. Right? So, hey, could God have used angels... To bear witness of the good news. I mean, this is what an angel means. Angel means messenger, right? They could have, they could have told others. Hey, God used angels to tell certain specific messages, but they didn't use them to proclaim this good news. God's design was that sinners would bear this good news. That the church would bear this good news. Then here we see the importance of preaching regarding salvation of sinners. The Apostle Paul goes through this progression, Romans chapter 10. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But if they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. Here, the apostle Paul is trying to get them to see. Listen, it is important that there be someone who bears this good news. Someone with beautiful feet, right? Beautiful feet. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? That this is the good news that goes forth. You think about the Samaritan woman, John chapter 4. She said something like this to her people, right? So Jesus, middle of the day, he has no bucket. She's got a bucket. He asked her for a drink, right? Hey, this is strange. 
You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Why are you asking me for a drink? Right? They don't have interactions. This is, again, part of the destruction. Right? The dividing wall. Jesus breaks down this dividing wall. And then they have this conversation. Right? Jesus, notice Jesus, he doesn't come out to condemn her. Right? He doesn't speak ill of her. Right? This is what a typical Jew would have said if he came into contact with a Samaritan. doesn't say any of those things. He wasn't harsh. You think about how Jesus spoke to the religious leaders. He doesn't speak to this Samaritan woman in the same way at all. And then afterwards, right, she goes and tells her people, come meet a man who, is, who knows everything that I ever did. Meaning, hey, come meet this guy. He, he told me all my sins, right? And, and then afterwards, right, you have this people coming to hear Jesus. And then they say to this woman, you know what? We believe not because we heard your testimony. We've heard him preach. We heard what he said. And we come to accept his word as our own. Meaning, hey, you merely pointed us to him. Right? So you think about the work. Think about the work. You tell your friends. It's just like the Samaritan woman. Come. Hear about a man who has changed my life. Come meet the... The love of my life, right? Well, what's his name? His name is Jesus, right? How, how is he so good? Well, what about all the, the evil men in my life? Well, this one is different. You bring him to the church where there's a preacher, right? And what am I doing? I, I, I'm not that man. I, I'm, I'm merely pointing to that man who is Jesus. And, and what they remember is, hey, it was through the ministry of the church. This friend of mine told me about this good news. Then I heard this good news preached. And I heard the preacher tell the people, believe upon this Jesus Christ for eternal life. He alone is your hope for the forgiveness of sins. Notice that God didn't say that he will use the means of pantomime. You know, you think about these, these clown-looking guys with the white faces and, and the makeup, and, and they... Typically, you find them there at, you know, Fisherman's Wharf or, you know, at the fair or wherever, right? So God didn't promise that speechless pantomime would somehow bear the good news and, and bear fruit of eternal life. No, we're told that God makes the reading, especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners, building them up. Here, again, Jesus, he preached to the Gentiles. He did. There were Gentiles, you know, the, the Roman centurion, right? He must have been a Gentile, right? The, well, the Samaritan, she was, you know, pretty much a Gentile, right? But here, here you look. There were Gentiles, but Jesus left the work to the church to do, to continue that work. The apostles, you know, apostle means one who has sent so Jesus talks about how he was sent of the Father. He's constantly saying this. The one who sent me, right? He's talking about the Father who sent him. He who receives me receives the one who sent me, being the Father. But then he talks about his, his disciples. That he says, just as God sent me, I, so I send you. Right? So they are ones who are sent. Those who receive you, he says, Jesus says, receives me. So the great commission Jesus gave to the church to bear witness of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Here. 
Have you stopped to ask yourself just how important the proclamation of peace is? The proclamation of the peace that Jesus Christ brings to this fallen world. This is why we should be excited. This is why we should be behind missions. This is why we should be behind church planting. This is why you and I should be those who are gossiping the gospel. You think about the various things that people can talk about. When you go get your hair cut, right, there's gossip. Near your workplace, eating lunch, there's gossip. Hey, gossip about something good and important. Let me tell you about good news in Jesus Christ. He alone. This is the only gossip that will last. This is the juiciest gossip there ever was. That's the second point, the proclamation of this peace. We have the third point, the proof of this peace, in verse 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We constantly need to be reminded about the sad, the deplorable condition of man outside of the saving work of Jesus Christ. It's so easy for us to think so highly, so well of ourselves. Hey, you know, I I can pay my bills. Hey, I got promoted. Uh, I I bought a house. Uh, Hey, you know, I, I finished this degree. Hey, I'm doing fine. That's all on the surface. That's all the the physical, the material, what we see. But spiritually, man has uh, the tendency not to notice that. They only see the effect of it, right? They only see the, or they only experience the suffering. They only experience the grief and the depression and and the animosity. Romans. 2, 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is a description about man's deplorable condition. That the Lord, in his generosity, he gives people 70 or 80 years, roughly. right? Some more, some less. But ultimately, however much time you have, you will have to answer to the true and the living God. You will, you will stand before the great white throne of judgment. And either you have a mediator in Jesus Christ, or you are condemned. There's only two options. You have a mediator in Jesus Christ, or you're condemned. People think so lightly today about the holiness of God. Whatever. What if God were one of us? Just a stranger on the bus, right? You've heard this. So, hey, not a big deal, right? God, no big deal, right? We come into his presence, we, we do whatever we want, right? Oh, what about that guy Uzzah? You think back Second Samuel chapter 6, right here. Uh, the, the Jews, they, they use the ark of God like some kind of, you know, magic amulet, right? You, you see in some of these Dracula movies, right? The people do, do the... This, crossed finger, right, or, or they make two sticks, and oh, the Dracula starts to, you know, starts to cower. This is exactly what the Jews were thinking. Hey, we, if we have this ark, we go into battle, we're not going to lose. We can't lose. And then, then they are so disappointed, they, they not only lost, they lost the ark, right? And, and it's not as if, it's not as if the, the ark was defenseless, right? You think about what happened to, was it 
was it the, the Philistines, how they were afflicted with all kinds of, was it hemorrhoids or, or other strange things that, that they said, we need to get this thing out of here, right? So David sends to have this thing brought back, the ark, and uh, they, they weren't supposed to carry it on a cart with, was it oxen? It was supposed to be carried by specific people, was it the Levites, with poles, right? They weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. It was on the cart. It was getting jostled. It's going to fall over. And this guy Uzzah puts his hand on it to keep it from falling off. And you might think, hey, come on. What's the big deal? And God struck him dead, right? This is the holiness of God we're talking about. The holiness of God. Man cannot approach God on his own terms, right? We, we're, not, we're not equals. Well, hey... Uh, God, you bring this to the table. I, I bring this to the table, right? And, and we, we negotiate like equals. No, 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 no. It doesn't happen like that, right? You, you go buy a house, right? You can do that with the owner. You're the buyer. He's the owner, right? You can negotiate. You cannot do that with God. That he, he lays down the terms. This, this is the gospel. And it's, you accept it or you reject it. You can't, you can't change the terms. Since the fall... Adam and Eve fell. Sinful man must have a mediator. And the only mediator that works is the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is the one who can mediate between God and man. Jesus is the one who opens the way to the Father. We read earlier in Psalm 118. Turn there for a moment. Starting in verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. And continuing, the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. It's talking about Jesus Christ. He's that gate. He's the gate of righteousness that we would enter through, that we would give thanks. And the world, the world seems to think, hey... Why are you Christians so exclusive? Right? Hey. When you talk to the Hindus, they generally have no problem with Jesus on the surface. Hey, we got a million gods. We got no issues if it's a million and one. Add Jesus to our list. No big deal. Oh. Accepting Jesus means all the rest of those you must give up. No. Then I cannot do that. Right? polytheists, right? This is not going to work for them. You think about Jesus. The world likes to think there are many roads that get to Rome. There are many ways to get to heaven. Proverbs speaks about this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. There's many religions. Only one leads to life. And that is Jesus Christ. He is the only access to the Father. Jesus obtained access to the Father by removing the wrath that was upon us due to our sins. Romans 8.1 Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. This is not good news. That condemnation has been removed. You ask yourself, what is it that you deserve? If we're going to demand our rights, 
Before God, we have a right to a fair trial. He, he gives everyone a fair and just trial. And, and the outcome as sinners is always the same. It's, there's no variation to it. Condemned. Right? Here's the account. Right? All the evidence is there. I have a friend who, who is a deputy DA there in San Diego County. And he tells me, hey, you know, and when I lived down there, you know, there's, there's murderers running around. So really? So yeah. We just don't have enough evidence on them. Right? So we, we can only spend the time uh, in court prosecuting those that we have all the evidence lined up. So we say, this is a slam dunk case. We're not going to waste any time. We're, we're going to only go after those. But you know what? With God, he's the perfect record keeper. It's all up there. Right? You, you think he would ever... Oh, should I miss that one? Oh. I was, I was sleeping. I, sorry. I, okay, I got most of them. No, he gets every single one of them. Right? It's as if he it's as if if he missed one, it's not as if you're gonna be set free. Right? You have however many septillions, octillions of of sins that are there, right? And he's gonna convict every one of us. Except of course if we have Jesus as our mediator. That he is the one, Jesus is the one who reconciles us to God, Jew and Gentile alike. He does it through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, the hostility that exists uh, between God and man, the wrath that rests upon us, that God, we're told, is indignant with the wicked every day, that he is patient, that he is long-suffering, but he's not happy with the wicked. Here, Jesus is the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So here, he's excluding all the others, but he's doing something very specific. He's also guaranteeing, saying, I am the way to the Father. And, and we might ask, well, minute, Jesus, are you sure? I mean, when he, when he sent you, are, are you positive you can get us to the Father? Well, when he says, no one goes to the Father except through me, there is a promise involved there. That he's excluding all the others, but he's promising that he who is in Christ has access to the Father. We think also, in this one verse, verse 18, For through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit, the Holy Spirit, to the Father, the first person of the Trinity. This is a very Trinitarian description, right? I don't want to make too extreme of a situation here, but you think about Christendom and how there's perhaps at times an overemphasis on persons of the Trinity. For example, liberal Christianity, it's all about God the Father. Right? The Father's love. Right? Oh, oh, Jesus? Oh, and they try to de-emphasize Jesus. Hey, he's so exclusive. He makes us look bad in front of the Buddhist and, and the Jew and the Muslim. Right? So they, they, they try to take him out of the picture. Focus on God the Father. And then you have evangelical Christianity in general that's so focused upon the Son. Uh, well, what about the Father or, or the Holy Spirit? And you have the, you know, the, the charismatic, the Pentecostal, so focused on the work of the Spirit and, and the fruits of the Spirit. What, what about the Father and the Son? We realize that they're all involved in this work of redemption. That God is the one who makes the plan. We, we saw that in Ephesians 1. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. 
that God is the one, the Father, who makes the plan. That he is the one who appoints the Son as mediator. That the Son, Jesus, also volunteers for that job. So this is what Jesus does. He is the one who gives access to the Father who is in heaven. He, the Father, was the one who sent his Son who would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so the Father and the Son together send the Holy Spirit. So this is where the, the redemption, the work of redemption is done by Jesus. The, the applying of redemption by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives new life to sinners. He is also the one who sanctifies us. Right? He keeps us on the straight and narrow. We think about how this peace that God gives us of it being in you. Now, perhaps you might ask, this peace, how do I know I have it? We think about how Jesus is peace. He himself is our peace. Having Jesus gives us peace within Having peace within is because we have peace with God, right, vertically. We start to see that there's peace horizontally, right? You think about hostility. It's easy for people who don't have peace within to be hostile towards others, right? This is, this is the fruit. This is the evidence of lacking peace is that there's hostility around you everywhere. It's like that, you know, the cartoon of that Tasmanian devil character, right? Where When, when he moves, there's like this dust cloud that moves with him or, you know, was it in... In um, Charlie Brown, that, that guy, Pigpen, right? He, he's got this dust cloud that follows him, right? And for people who lack peace with God, there's like this dust cloud of hostility that follows them everywhere people go. Is there a peace in your life? Like, are you a peacemaker? Because you have Jesus Christ, are you able to speak peaceably with others? I think also about a new view of God. Before, we were under his condemnation. You condemn me, I condemn you. Right? Romans 8.15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And so I ask you, do you have fatherly affections towards our God? Meaning, the animosity that we once had towards him, has that changed to having fatherly affections? Is there a desire to please our Father who is in heaven? To honor Him? To bring Him glory? Have you turned away from your own sins in repentance and embraced the treasure who is Jesus Christ? There's only two possibilities. You will love the Lord Jesus or you will love your sins. And he who loves Jesus, I, I, I do love Jesus, but I just love my sin more. Well, sorry, that's, that's your answer, right? Ultimately, if you're going to forsake your sins, you're only going to do that if you have a greater love for Jesus Christ. Also, have you forsaken your own righteousness as the means by which you have access to God? Are you going to say, you know what? All the things that I do for God, 
all the good works that I have. Regarding achieving and obtaining my own righteousness, I must say that counts for absolutely nothing. That on your account, you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And, you know, it's, it's like in your resume, right? The things that you did, and I'm assuming you're old, right? The things that you did back in junior high school and high school, that doesn't get onto your resume because it's just too old. It's just irrelevant. And same thing on your resume. You have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and it goes on page after page after page, and whatever I did back then, whatever I do, it never makes it onto that resume because Jesus' righteousness is so great. This is forsaking your own righteousness, realizing that Jesus' righteousness is so exceedingly great for you. Are you trusting in Jesus alone for your righteousness as he is offered to you in the gospel? You must embrace him. You must trust in him. You must delight in him. You must realize that if there's anything in life that's worth keeping, worth holding on to, you can lose anything and everything, including life itself. But you realize that Jesus Christ is that great treasure, that he is the one to whom we must cling to to the very end, that he alone is your hope of forgiveness. He is alone is your hope for access to the Father. He alone is your hope for eternal life. May we go to our God together in prayer.